0: This morning we'll finish up in the book of of Judges. Last week we zeroed in on Gideon, but we also talked about how Judges demonstrates to us what happens to a nation when it turns its back on God. And Judges records about 350 years of Israel's history and we said there's this downward spiral of apostasy And each time they'd repent, God would raise up a new judge, and he'd help deliver them from their enemies. But then, shortly thereafter, they would return to their godless ways, return to idolatry, return to carnal living, and they would need God to raise up another judge. But each time a new judge comes up, things are a little bit worse than the time before. And by the time we get to Samson, who's the last official judge in his time period, um, we're left with a judge who gives us a portrait of great power without piety. Great power without piety. So let me start by explaining that word piety. It's not one that we normally use but the Puritans were very fond of it. The founders of our nation were very fond of this word. Piety is devotion to God, humility, fear of the Lord, a life marked by consistent adherence to things that are sacred, and avoidance of the secular or profane. So a, a life marked by choosing the better thing, choosing... God, choosing to use your gifts and talents for His glory. Choosing to spend your time and your money on eternal things. Not only avoiding that which is sinful and that which is is profane, but even gradually learning to avoid that which is allowable by God, but my life would be better spent, my time would be better spent, My gifts and talents would be better spent in these activities. Remember, Paul said all things are allowable, but not all things are profitable. We're really talking about spiritual maturity. Piety is a hallmark of spiritual maturity. And in Samson, we see somebody with almost zero spiritual maturity. All the gifts in the world, and yet no piety. On a side note here, uh, just, we do use the word pious in our culture, but it's, it's a negative term. It's spiritual hypocrisy. Oh, he's so pious. Oh, he's on his spiritual high horse. You know, that's not what we're talking about this morning. It's a great word, and if you hadn't heard, I, I just want to introduce it into your vocabulary, piety. Plus, it makes for some really nice alliteration in our sermon title. So, Samson, A Portrait of Power Without Piety. We get so fixated on the story of Samson because of his great feats of strength. The kids, especially the young boys in our church, love to hear about Samson. I mean, he's slaying Philistines with an ox goad and then with the jawbone of a donkey and... um, you know he's buff and great hair i mean come on what guy wouldn't want to be samson
1: and yet when we
0: learn more about his life we see this absence of piety this absence of spiritual maturity it's it's a it's really a cautionary tale from god a cautionary tale samson's life's meant to warn us about a life using God's gifts he's given to us to glorify God and instead using those gifts to glorify self. Fortunately, there's a happy ending, although it's kind of a mixed happy ending. It's a bittersweet happy ending. He finally comes to his senses, but uh, only in time to do one last great thing for God in his life. And the call this morning is that we wouldn't wait to the end of our life to realize that everything the Lord has given us, first and foremost, Jesus and our eternal life through faith in Him, isn't so we can say, great, I'm not going to hell, now back to my life. He saved us for a purpose. And He's given us gifts and talents. Each of you has gifts and talents that we can use to glorify God, to bring others to Christ. This is a don't-waste-your-life sermon. Robert Murray McShane was a, a young man who learned piety at an early age and got more out of his life than most of us in 30 years. He died when he was 30. got more out of his life for God in 30 years than most of us will get in the 80 or 90 years that God gives us. The man wrote with maturity rare for a 20-year-old. He wrote like he was 70. Listen to this. He says, Do not forget the culture of the inner man, I mean of the heart. How diligently the Calvary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument, I trust, a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. Let me repeat that. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. By awful he means good, terrible, frightful good. Not the way we use the word awful today. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And we are all called to be ministers of God. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are called to minister in His name. And again, God's given you gifts and talents, but it's not the gift and the talent that will glorify God. It is the likeness to Jesus, your piety, your devotion to God that will make all the difference. I know many think, boy, I could do great things for God if I just had His gift or her gift. God didn't give me very much talent. That is not true at all. First and foremost, He's given you eternal life and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Yet, if justification of being saved is all of God, it's all of God, God did all the work in our salvation, but in sanctification, in growing in Christ's likeness, it becomes 100% God and 100% us. How does that work mathematically? I'm a math teacher. I know that's not supposed to add up, but in God's economy, His Word tells us it's all God and it's all us in our sanctification. When He calls us home in our glorification, He will finish the work He started. Glorification is all God. Again, but you and I, if we are in Christ, find ourselves in this period of sanctification. We are growing in Christ's likeness. The gifts and talents He's given us are, yes, are important, but our piety, our devotion to God is even more important. God intended Samson to have great power and piety. We know that because before we learn anything about his amazing strength, the first thing we hear is that he was supposed to be separated, consecrated to the Lord. Let's read about that, Judges thirteen three. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Notice no no message here of his great physical power and strength. In the Law of Moses, we read that anyone could take the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow focused on three things. One, that you wouldn't um, eat or drink anything impure, especially anything from the vine. And then two, you wouldn't cut your hair. And three, you wouldn't touch anything unclean, especially dead animals or dead people. But more than that, it was really a life where you were calling yourself not only to obey the Mosaic Law like everybody should, but you were calling yourself to a special consecrated life to the Lord. That you would forego things that other people could enjoy um, so that you could really focus in on the Lord. Kind of like today when we fast. We say, yes, I could eat this, or I could drink this, or I could partake in this activity, but I am choosing not to, Not to show off how holy I am, but to use that energy and that time in focused obedience and devotion to God. The Nazarite vow was taken um, on your own volition. As you grew up, you would decide to take a Nazarite vow, but this is the one time that God called someone to be a Nazarite from birth. That's why the scriptures say, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. From the womb. Think about what a special life God intended for Samson to have. How many other places in the Bible do you hear the angel of the Lord appearing to mother and father and telling them that you will have a child specially consecrated to the Lord? Abraham and Sarah? Right? The father of Israel, who God made covenant with, um, John the Baptist, and Jesus—that's pretty lofty company that Samson finds himself in. Now we don't hear much about Samson's childhood. The story fast-forwards to Samson being of marrying age. We know Samson was a man of great outer strength, but the Bible reveals to us that he was a man with no inner strength, no inner fortitude. He was a man driven by his passions, whatever he wanted. He went after it. I want it now. Then Samson went down to Timnah, That's south in in Canaan. And saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So at this time, the Philistines were the primary enemies of Israel. The Philistine people were expert uh, mariners. They lived near the coast. And so they had taken control of the southern portion of Israel means the Israelites had to probably pay tribute to them to keep them from attacking them. These were the movers and shakers in society. These were the important people, the people with the power, the people with the influence. If you were an Israelite, you were more of a second-class citizen in your own promised land at this time. Remember, it's near... It's more near the end of the book of Judges, so this spiral of apostasy has really gotten low. Israel's power and influence was waning. So here you have this special young man with obvious special gifts. I get the impression that his parents rarely told him no. He's that, he's that only child, that special young man. Ooh that starts to end up being in control of the house. We call this a child-centered house. And it happens. It doesn't happen overnight, but little by little. And you can see it in another person's house when Johnny has the reins in that house. People listen to him instead of Johnny listening to mom and dad. And so this was Samson. How do we know this? Listen to what happens next. He came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. It was more customary for mom and dad to go out and choose a bride for their son. And mature mother and father would put thought and prayer into who would be a good match for my son. Here's Samson saying, I want her, go get her for me. His parents say to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives? You know, how about a nice Jewish girl? (laughs) How about a nice Jewish girl? or among all our people, that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. Uncircumcised. They don't have covenant with God. They are not God's covenant people. In fact, they're our enemies. This is supposed to be a young man that's set apart, consecrated to God, and he chooses a Philistine wife. But Samson said to his father, and I love the monosyllabic language here, get her for me, for she looks good to me. <laughs> like a caveman. <laughs> me want. Go get. You don't know anything about her family, anything about her personality, anything about her character. Get her for me, for she looks good to me. And this is... this is uh, this makes us laugh, but in our culture, we don't do arranged marriages. But so many of our young people, in their heart of hearts, it's not what they say out loud, but in essence, they're looking at someone and they're saying, get, I will get him or her for me. He or she looks good to me. And not taking the time to figure out what kind of person is this. Do they love the Lord? Do they have a servant's heart? Are they others-focused? Do they care about the Great Commission? If we're honest with ourselves, it's flattering for you to tell the person you fall in love with that you're gorgeous, I want to be married to you. It's, It's flattering, but when you dig through the surface level, and this often comes out in marital counseling, what you're really saying is, a gorgeous girl like you, I, des- I deserve a girl like this. You deserve to serve me. You deserve um, to be my special person because I'm such a great guy. And the-, the woman's saying the same thing in her heart. So the courting starts with flattery and all of the, you're so beautiful and you're so wonderful, and if I married you, I'd be the happiest person on the earth. And then half of marriage is in divorce. So what happened? I think in our heart of hearts, because of our selfishness, we're all like Samson. Get her for me, for she looks good to me. When we should be saying, Lord, can can I marry this wonderful creature, your your daughter, so that I would have someone to, to serve, someone to lead, someone to love sacrificially. Well, that would change your whole outlook on who you decided to marry. Samson was definitely powerful. On their way down to the wedding, his parents relented. He separated from his parents for a moment and a young lion attacks him. A young lion attacks him. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Amazing power. And some irony here, too, because Samson a young lion himself. This lion foolishly attacked this powerful man and was torn in two. Almost prophetic what would happen at the end of Samson's life. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. We know Samson's not just powerful, he's clever. God's given him a measure of intelligence. He loved to come up with riddles, we see two or three times in the story of Samson that he, he comes up with some poetry when he slaughters the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey in the Hebrew. There's this cool little poem in your Bible. It's kind of set apart in a paragraph because it's poetic language. Are you getting a picture of Samson in your head? Can you can you picture a guy who's very powerful and too clever for his own good and likes to show off how much stronger he is than everyone else and how much uh, more clever he is than everyone else? Samson, the smartest guy in the room and the strongest guy in the room. So at the wedding the wedding would last seven days, he decides to propose a a riddle to the wedding party. And the wedding party's huge. At least 30 men in the wedding party. You thought you've been to some out-of-control weddings where the wedding party stretched all the way down the stage. Maybe that was your wedding. hope I didn't offend you just now. But 30, 30 men, at least, in the wedding party. And he propounds this riddle. And he says, if you will tell it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. That's not 30 changes of clothes for each guy, it's just there's 30 men. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, propound your riddle that we may hear it. I think they're figuring, look, there's 30 of us. We have seven days. We can figure this thing out. He's just one guy. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And three days go by, and they they still don't know the answer to the riddle and probably starting to get a little nervous now. And so they go to Samson's wife, and tell her, you need to find out the answer to the riddle, or or I think they threatened to kill her and her dad if, if she doesn't find out the answer to the riddle. Now, instead of going to Samson and saying, hey, they've threatened my life, you know, protect me, stand up for my honor, she decides to try to crowbar the answer out of him with cajoling and whining and... Um, what people would call their feminine wiles. All those strategies women know how to use against men because we're, we get weak in the knees. Oh, men have their own way to manipulate, so let's not just pick on the ladies here. But this was Samson's fatal flaw. We'll see this throughout his life, that he chooses the wrong kind of woman and then he plays these, these love games that make for great, Romance novels, but horrible marriages. He loves that he knows something she doesn't. He likes playing the game. As soon as he tells her the answer to the riddle, the game's over, right? He's lost his leverage. So he's got something she wants. Makes him feel good about himself. Makes him feel important. Makes him feel smarter. It's all very, very sad. Very immature. Very shallow personality. She says to him, You only hate me, and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told it to my father or mother. So should I tell you? However, she wept before him 7 days. Could you imagine your new bride crying for 7 days? I'm surprised he made it 7 days. So on the 7th day he told her because she pressed him so hard. So then she turned around and told the riddle to the sons of her people, of course. For a clever man, for a clever man, why didn't he wait till the 8th day? I think maybe he thought, I'll tell her just before I tell everyone else. That way I get credit for telling her first. I don't know. The, the scripture doesn't tell us. I'm using my sanctified imagination and what I know about human nature to fill in the blanks. And so the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down. See, so he thinks he's going to win the bet. And they come to him at just the last minute and show him up publicly. You know, he's like, so, do you know the answer to the riddle? Of course you don't, because I'm so clever and you aren't. And they say, well, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And now we're going to see his petulance. Here's a new P word for you today if you're not familiar with this term, petulance. Petulance is irritability or anger in a childish way when things don't go your way. Irritability or anger in a childish way when things don't go your way. He says to them in the middle of his wedding with his bride nearby, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Men, just a word of advice. (laughs) Things you don't say to your wife, ever. Ever. Especially not publicly. And it, not so much heifer that she was large or, you know, like a cow. It was, she's my property. How dare you talk to my wife behind my back? Not because I love her and not because I want to protect her, but that's my property. I wanted her and they went and got her for me. She's mine now. And you would have never figured out the riddle. That's not fair. You cheated. He's concerned about all the wrong things here. He's embarrassed publicly, and now he's mad. And he doesn't have 30 changes of clothes to give him. so he he does something terrible. He goes down to Ashkelah, to men who have no dog in the fight at all, and he murders 30 men and takes their clothing. When I, mean, I think the text implies that he slaughtered them, so now their clothing is drenched in blood, and he brings it to the 30 men in the wedding party, and say, here, here's your prize. Right? We see this behavior in in children. Right? That they're losing the game. Fine! You win. I let the baby win. You know, you're acting like a baby and you're accusing everyone else of being a baby. And if you, if you have more than one child in your home, you've probably seen this in all of it, but, but maybe one or this child especially has this trait it's really hard to to work work that out of them. In fact, if you struggle with it, I would say you probably still struggle with it today. I, I hate losing. Oh, I hate losing. So I was telling Adam Richter. To, today. I didn't even watch the Dodger game last night because I turn into a horrible person when I watch sports. <laughs> you don't want to be around me. so. And I hate games of chance because I can't use my skill as an advantage. I just call it such a dumb game. I don't even know why we're playing this. My wife and I used to play Scrabble. We don't play anymore because I hate, I hate losing at it. And she finally beat me one day, and I was like, well, it's because you got all the high-scoring tiles. I had, like, all vowels the whole She's like, you can't even win with dignity or, or lose with dignity. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is wrong with me? You know, when you finally see in the mirror the ugliness that everyone else sees, How long has that been going on? Pretty much your whole life. So this is Samson. This is who he is. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. He went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger still was burning, and so he went up to his father's house without his bride. I don't want her. She betrayed me. And so, his bride's father gives her in marriage to Samson's best man. It's like a Jerry Springer show now. (laughs) This petulance, this immaturity, this tantrum. This is the judge of God's people. Is this the kind of man you want ruling over you? Certainly not. I had to ask myself as I was preparing the sermon, how could the Spirit of the Lord fall on one filled with such unrighteous anger? Why would God choose to allow His Spirit? In the Old Testament times, the Spirit of the Lord would come For a time, on certain people for certain tasks, God appointed him to. The Spirit of the Lord came on Saul when he's anointed king, but as he disobeys God, the Spirit of the Lord leaves, and then the Spirit of the Lord comes on David. In New Testament times, in the New Covenant, praise God, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we're regenerated, He gives us a new heart, the Holy Spirit falls on us permanently. Isn't that wonderful? And terrifying at the same time, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, live a life of piety? God himself is dwelling inside of us as believers. Well, we get an answer to this question. Do we get a little peek at what God is doing here? I already read judges fourteen three but if we skip down to where I underlined after he says, get her for me, for she looks good to me, it says, however, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. This is a shocking, almost mysterious truth of God's Word, that God in His sovereignty will often work through our sin and disobedience, and immaturity. How much better for God... Wouldn't you rather Him work through your righteousness and your obedience? But He will work through our mistakes, through our sins. If Samson had married one of his own... There would have been no occasion for him to go down and make war with the Philistines. Israel didn't want to go to war with them. They were outnumbered. And so, he got the ball rolling through Samson. Eventually, King David would finally defeat the Philistines once and for all. But God will sovereignly use it our personalities even our sinful tendencies to accomplish as well we've been seeing this all throughout the old testament narrative it's actually quite humbling quite humbling you know when we stand before the lord not at the judgment seat where he declares us righteous or unrighteous in christ we've been declared righteous but there's another seat that believers will stand in front of it's called the bema seat. like the It's like the bench. And God will look at our life and tell us where we're deserving of rewards above and beyond our eternal life reward, which is, you know, the big prize. And He'll determine what our role is in heaven based on our faithfulness here on earth. How sad if you hear... God tell us at the end of our life, I did some incredible things through your sin right here. We'll still praise him for that. But I think there will be a moment of sadness. I agree with Pastor Andy where he would teach that he'll wipe away every tear in heaven. Why would there be tears in heaven? There's no sin and no more disease and no more... I think we're going to hear where we could have accomplished more in God's name. And how humbling to find out God got it done anyways through our disobedience. So this isn't to say that go ahead and just live your life any way you want because God will accomplish His will regardless. No, it's how much better for God to accomplish His will through an obedient servant. Another lesson we are learning here is that God often allows reprobate nations to be ruled by babies. And we've been drawing some parallels between the nation Israel and our own nation, and need I say more? Need I say more? In fact, it's getting to the point where our world won't stand for the leadership of a God-fearing Intelligent, wise leader. They don't poll well. Here's Isaiah. Obviously, this is past the book of Judges, but as Israel turns from God again. Isaiah prophesies: "...for behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty, and the man of rank, the counselor, and even the skillful magician and the expert in charms." Now, the skillful magician and the expert in charms are not things that, the God, that God recommends. He's saying, this nation is so far gone, I'm going to take away any source of leadership from you, and I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. We see this on a wholesale level in, in our nation, our, our youth We have this thing called adolescence now. You think it's just normal, but it's new. Read history. There was no adolescence. You went from childhood to adulthood. You were expected to make that transition. It happened little by little in the home, but there was a day where you were told, you are an adult now. You will contribute to society. No more living for yourself. That is childishness. What is your vocation, your call, vocal call? Vocation is more than a job or a career. It's a calling from God. What has God called you to do? What gifts and talents has He given you? How will you use that to glorify God and better your fellow man? None, none of this 10 to 15 years of going and finding yourself. I have news for you. You spend 10, 15 years focused on yourself finding yourself yourself you will find it very difficult to grow out of that pattern of selfishness and self-focused behavior. We were watching some old episodes of the Cosby Show last night, and Bill's meeting one of her daughter's suitors. And he says, well, what what are you going to do when you graduate college? And he said, I'm going to spend ten years... Going to find myself. And Bill said, Sounds like there's time there to find you and a few more people as well. Yeah, right? Who needs ten years to find yourself? For Christians, we find ourselves in Christ. Our identity is grounded in Christ. You want to find yourself? Look at Christ. Study Christ. Obey Christ. Die to self. Live for others. Love sacrificially. Dedicate your talents and your gifts and your time to the Lord. If you fall into the trap of, I've got to kind of get my little kingdom set up first, and then I can be about the kingdom of God, you will never make that transition. It's seek first the kingdom of God, and the rest of these things will be added unto you. Not seek first your little kingdom, and then I'll, then I'll have a good headquarters to go out and do things for the Lord. Our sin nature is such that if you feed into self, that is who you will become. It is very hard to make that transition down the road. Don't wait another day. Make that transition today. Because you think, eventually, I'll change. I'll get serious about God. I'll, I'll get serious about reading my Bible and studying. And I'll get serious about prayer. I'll get serious about evangelism. Uh, I'll get serious about ministry. I'll talk to that person I've been meaning to talk to about the Lord. They'll be there tomorrow. And eventually, this game catches up with you. Eventually, our sin nature, our carnal Mind, it'll it'll catch up with you. And what did we read in the Sermon on the Mount? Those who hear these words of mine and do not act on them will be like a man who builds his house on the sand. And then the storms of life came, and they will come. Amen? They come. And great was that house's fall. And great was Samson's fall. He ends up chasing after another Philistine woman. The, the the more famous of the two women, Delilah. One commentator was saying, I'm sure Samson and Delilah had no idea that thousands of years later people would still be talking about their relationship as a cautionary tale. Making movies about it, writing books about it. The Philistines went to Delilah and said, find out what is the source of Samson's strength. So we're playing the game again. Samson knows something that Delilah doesn't know. He, he, he loves dangling the carrot. He lies to her a number of times. Well, you know, if, if, if you, if you uh, wrap me up in this kind of cord, I won't be able to break it. Well, he broke right through it, and he... Slaughters some more Philistines. And then he, then he gets a little bit closer to the edge. Well, if you braid my hair into a loom. That doesn't even work. But they, bra- <laughs> they braid his hair into a loom. She says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He wakes up. He breaks out of the loom. He slaughters more Philistines. It's a game to him. It's so sad to see him using this amazing strength, this amazing talent, this amazing life he could have had. And he squanders it on unsavory women and love games. Oh, Samson, when are you going to grow up? I know you know people in your life. Oh, when will they grow up? great talent, great potential. Maybe you see yourself in Samson. Today's the day to grow up in the Lord. Consider your calling, consider your salvation, consider what Christ had to pay to make you His own, and now start living like it. Ephesians 4, one. I beseech you, I beseech you, Paul says, To live worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And the very first word Paul uses after he says that is in all humility. Humble yourself before the Lord. Don't be like Samson. He finally tells her, he finally relents, relents because it says that his soul was annoyed to death. His soul was annoyed to death. It was fun stringing along this woman, but now it's like nails on a chalkboard. Woman, knock it off! His soul was annoyed to death, and you've been annoyed to death with your spouse, male or female. It it happens. But you've been the source of annoying someone to death, too. Don't forget that. That street runs both directions. And so he finally relents. He tells him her secret. And he falls asleep in her arms and she shaves his head and in come the Philistines and his power is gone. Not because the power was in the hair, the power was in the obedience. What little obedience we saw to God, at least we saw Samson keep his Nazarite vows. He says, if I am shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. News for you, Samson. You are already weak like any other man. Weak on the inside. His great external strength blinded him to his own internal weakness and sin. Right? There's the whole irony of the situation because what do they do? They bind him and they gouge his eyes out. That's what they did back then to humiliate your enemy. Instead of killing you, we'll, we'll gouge out your eyes. Sometimes they would have all the men of a village gouge out their eyes. Fine, we won't kill you and slaughter you, but we're going to gouge out your eyes. And we'll even give you the opportunity to do it to yourself. It, it, it's humiliating. It adds insult to injury. It's where we get that term. So then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. And he was a grinder in the prisons. He still had above normal strength, but not enough to break out of his chains. And they used that strength now to mock him. You're going to be a slave in our prison. You're going to grind Wheat, which wasn't only a slave's job, but typically in the culture that was women's work, to grind wheat. No offense to women in the room, but then to be called a woman and to be forced to do women's work was humiliating. This great line that all the commentaries have, and they don't know who first coined this but sin blinds, and then it binds, and then it grinds. Isn't that great? Put that on a post and stick that all over your house to help you not to be tempted to dabble in sin. Sin blinds, sin binds, and then it grinds, which begs the question of sin blinds. Am I blinded right now to something? Probably yes. You need to ask people in your life, where do you see sin in my life that I cannot see? Where is my weak spot? Where is my fatal flaw? I've been having uh, conversations um, in the office where we're noticing that people go into a little room in their, their mind. A little house, little room you know you shouldn't go in. A uh, pattern of thinking, a rut that you should stay far away from. But you're mad and you feel like you have the right to go in that little room. And you go in and you close the door and you say, I'm just going to stay in here for a few minutes. Just going to fume, just going to vent, just going to pout, just going to feel vindicated, just going to feel like I deserve better than this. And next thing you know, you look up and the door is gone and the windows are gone. And you're stuck in this little room and you can't get out. Why do we go in those little rooms? sin blinds and it binds and it grinds don't go there find out what that 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 pattern of thinking is in your life find out what that fatal flaw is that you fall for it every time and allow people in your life to warn you and to help you hey let's not go down this road we know where it leads hey don't go in that little room come on out let's go serve the lord let's 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 go do something to magnify God instead of magnify self right now. Let's count our blessings. Let's be thankful. Let's do something for somebody else. But don't go to that place. Samson, don't go there. Oh, he went there again. And it finally caught up with him. And Samson could only blame himself. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Some might say, well, God gave Samson this great strength and became a temptation. God meant the great strength and power to be used for God's glory and for the good of Israel, to deliver them from their enemies. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I have to bring up this verse because everyone is tempted when they sin to blame someone else for their sin. It's not my fault. He, he, got, he made me so angry. My kids, they exasperate me. My boss at work, he had it coming. Ironically, finally Samson sees the light. Now that he's physically blind, his spiritual eyes open. They pull him out of prison. They're having a huge feast to Dagon, the Philistine god. He's half man, half fish. He's like a fish god. And they're having this huge party. And they say, hey, bring out Samson for the entertainment. You know, we'll have him do feats of strength. He'll be stumbling around the stage with no eyes. The great champion of Israel, Yahweh God's great champion, look at him now. They're not just mocking Samson, they're mocking God. Beloved, as Christians, we represent God. You should be more concerned about God's reputation and His fame than your own. And when we choose to sin, it's not just personal, it drags down the name of God. breaks my heart when i hear christians sinning in a public way or in a private way but especially in a public way and people go oh yeah they're christians well, i guess i don't need to go to church i can live better than that on my own or i can at least live that bad on my own all the people samson wanted to impress were at this party They were the movers, the shakers, the aristocracy. And they weren't impressed with them now. And he got to hear all the jeering and all the mocking and all the scoffing. And he says, Oh Lord God, finally we see some humility. Please remember me and please strengthen me. Just this this time. Not strengthen me so I can break these chains and destroy all my enemies and, and survive and escape. Just strengthen me enough that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. I would love it and you would love it if his prayer was a little more theologically correct. But this is this is what the seedlings of faith looks like. I've heard many people have come to the Lord and you hear their testimony and that, that first prayer they pray is like, you know, as you grow in Christ, you know what your prayers are supposed to sound like. And they just cried out to the Lord and they knew they were a mess and they said, save me. That'll do. But you have to realize you're a mess and you can't save yourself. Save me. Shortest prayer in the Bible, Peter sinking. Lord, help me! God didn't say, well, I need to hear, Peter, that you've realized you're weak and you can't walk on water and you're not as good as you think you are. No, the the Lord reached down and saved him. Hebrews, The book of Hebrews tells us we will meet Samson in heaven. He knocks down the pillars and... Everything comes crashing down and he dies and all the pagan Philistine mockers of God die with him. Jesus said, Better to be physically blind and holy than to indulge in your carnal senses. He said, If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Beloved, take an account of your life and see where you're prone to stumble, where that fatal flaw is. You may have this amazing gifting, but if it causes you to be prideful all the time, then, then pluck it out. I gave some examples this morning, but I'm afraid if I give examples, then the ones I don't give, then people will ignore those. But if you have great leadership abilities, but you're that person who always has to be in charge you know the best way for it to be done, then I'm not saying don't do ministry. I'm saying you need to get involved in ministry where you are serving and not the one in charge. Take orders from someone else. Even if everything inside you is like, oh goodness, that is so inefficient. Okay, It's your blind spot. You need, you need to serve. You don't always have to be in charge. So this isn't a call to stop ministering. It's a call to examining your life and seeing where you're prone to stumble and take steps to avoid stumbling. And if that means plucking out an eye figuratively, and he said, if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. Better to go into heaven with one hand. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Samson, for all he accomplished in his pride, when he was finally humbled, it says, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. If only he was, had that humility his whole life, what could Samson have accomplished in the name of God? And yet, God worked through Samson to, to start this battle against the Philistines. But even better, what has God done through the life of Samson? He's given us a portrait of how sad it is to squander great power and great gifts and great talent from God. You see, on the one hand, if Samson had cleaned up his act, we never would have had this great example. But on the other hand, the whole point is, don't be Samson. We don't need any more examples of this. Don't waste another second of your life on yourself. Today is the day. If you don't know the Lord, repent and receive the free gift of salvation today. And if you've been squandering your gifts, you come to church, you hear a sermon, but then you go home and you don't really do anything with all this knowledge you've been given, today is the day to intentionally make some changes in your life. You've conquered the world. You're at the top of the heap You're the CEO of the boardroom. You've achieved the American dream, and yet, in God's eyes, you've accomplished nothing. Be saddened over that. Repent, come to your senses, and don't waste another day of your life. Jesus is... The true and better Samson. Samson gave his life to crush his enemies. Jesus gave his life to crush the real enemies, sin and death. The the enemies we couldn't conquer, he conquered for us, so that we could now move forward and have victory. Have victory over our sin, have victory using our gifts and talents for his glory. But get this, where Samson gave his life to crush. Israel's enemies, Jesus gave his life to save. His enemies. We were his enemies. Jesus gave his life to save his enemies. God demonstrates his own love toward us and towards us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we're all ministers. It's not just your pastors, it's not just the elders. We're all called to be ministers. First Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Let's close with another McShane quote. He said this to other pastors, but I'm I'm saying this applies to all of us. We're all ministers of the Gospel. Study universal holiness of life. Study it. Read books about personal holiness. Read books, what we would call counseling and discipleship books. Read biographies of the great heroes of the faith. Study universal holiness of life. Study Jesus Your whole usefulness depends on this, for your sermons last but an hour or two. Your life preaches all the week. If Satan can only make a covetous minister a lover of praise, of pleasure, of good eating, he has ruined your ministry. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. I don't care who the world thinks you are, it's who you are in front of God when no one else is looking that matters. Let's pray. Father God, make us holy. Make us a sharp instrument in your hands. Clean us and purify us by your word. Take our talents and use them for your glory. May we shed off all the things that are hindering us and weighing us down so we can run the race with speed and quickness and with perseverance. Make us like Jesus, Lord, for our good and for the good of the world and for your great name. Amen. Amen.